0: And I want to start with the question. If Jesus himself is peace and brings peace, if he's even called the Prince of Peace, then why don't we have it? (laughs) Why do we live in a world that seems more divided, or at least in our culture, than before? Why do we live in a world where there is so much violence, conflict, war, and even short of those things, such divisions, and lack of harmony between people. That's what we want to address today. We want to talk about the path of true peace. And this is a peace in our society. It's also a peace within us, because those two things are always eternally linked. Let's begin with prayer. Join me if you would. Father, uh, thank you for the word that our brother Steve read. You yourself are our peace. I'm not able on my best day to explain all the glory of this God. Would you, through your Spirit, indeed do just what that last song talked about? Holy Spirit, would you show us Christ through the preaching of your word? No one here needs my opinions, but we all need to hear your word directed to us, your creations, those whom you loved and have redeemed. So let us hear that, please. Let us put aside the thoughts of last week and the worries about the upcoming one. Right now, we desire to give you our full attention and ask you, Holy Spirit, would minister your word to us, please. Thank you. Amen. Well, to answer that question, just want to remind us a little bit of where we've been. Last week, we talked about, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, the great transformation that God is doing. And we gave this example of God, our transformation, transforming a Coca-Cola plant into a swanky hotel. And that's different than just improving something, right? Uh, If if someone just says, well, we need another, we need some better vats, you know, in here. We need uh, to clean up the floor tile. No, the owner would say, look, we're involved in a transformation, all right? We're not going to care about those. We've got bigger fish to fry. And so I suggested that our main problem with trusting God is this, that we are mostly focused on improving our lives, and God is working to transform our nature. And that's really to come into play as we talk about this idea of peace, because we also may need to adjust our thinking about what God desires when he thinks of bringing peace to us. So I put it like this, and this is the main point I want to get across today that Christ brings true peace the the peace of love good uh, background to remind us of this on the very night he was betrayed Jesus looked at his disciples and he told them peace I leave with you my peace I give to you I do not give to you as the world gives don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid so let's write this down what do we see here? I put a couple things in your in your outline. First, as we see here and as we see all through scripture, God's desire has always been to make true peace. God's desire has always been to have to bring peace. and uh, and we see it here. We also see all through the scripture, this is his desire. You remember the the day of Pentecost, the first thing to happen was people from various Countries and languages could all hear together the gospel proclaimed. There was a, a unity that was brought forth. God's desire has always been for true peace. And the way He makes true peace, though, the way we understand this, we're going to have to understand something about this true peace that God brings. There is peace, and then there is peace. And uh, maybe the best way to, uh, to explain this is to think about the kind of piece that many people would think about in Paul's time when he was writing this. And then also, you know, this is actually reflective of what most people think of today. So Paul's writing this about 60 AD. He's writing it as a citizen of the Roman Empire to people who were also citizens of the Roman Empire, or at least under the Roman Empire. And uh, in the Roman Empire at that time, there was this idea, this phrase called the Pax Romana which is just Latin for the Peace of Rome. And uh, the Roman emperors were very proud of this, and they even put it on their coins, that they brought the Pax Romana. And what they meant was that for this period, and, and this historians would date this from around A.D. 27 to A.D. 80, so a better part of two centuries, there was, at least if you grade it on the curve, a relative lack of large-scale wars and, and huge rebellions, and there was some semblance of, of order Again, at least if you grade it on the curve. The problem was the Pax Romana was a kind of peace that was imposed by force from outside, from outside people. I like how Steve Bell defined it. That dreadful absence of conflict ensured by a threatening, crushing violence that's morally indistinguishable from the violence it would seek to suppress on any perceived internal or external dissent. A peace that is only accomplished by raw power, securing those who had wield it over and against those who threaten it. As one of their own historians said, to ravish, to slaughter, to usurp under false titles they call empire, and where they make a desert, they call it peace. So there's actually a, a pretty good symbol of this. It was symbolized by what's called the, the fasces, which was a this bundle of rods, they're usually six or eight rods, that were tied together by, uh, by strong silk and they were wrapped around an axe. And it was supposed to symbolize this enforced unity that this force that held them all together, but also the axe in the middle symbolized what would happen if you didn't keep this unity, if you, uh, if you rebelled against Rome in any way. Now, it's interesting, by the way. This was called a fascist in, in Latin. And when the fascist government of, of Italy under Mussolini wanted to uh, make this their own, this title, they called themselves the fascists. And indeed, this was their symbol. And that's where we get this the 20th century notion of a fascist regime. A regime <clears throat> stripped of all the other things we could talk about that seeks to impose power by force. Now, let's understand something, right? Jesus, God, could have achieved that kind of power anytime he wanted, and a lot more completely than Rome ever could. I mean, Jesus himself, as he was going to the cross, he reminded his disciples look, if I wanted to, guys, I could call 10,000 angelic warriors. They could take care of this platoon of Roman soldiers. This was a man who had control over nature when it so pleased him. This is a man who, if he wanted to, could have achieved this kind of peace. But that is not the kind of peace that God desires for you and I or for this world as a whole. God desires a different kind of peace. Some people have contrasted that with the Pax Christi, again, Latin, for the peace of Christ, symbolized not by someone wielding This power of death is symbolized by Jesus bearing the symbol of his own death. The Romans invented the cross, by the way. It wasn't a Jewish invention. The Romans invented it as part of their Pax Romana to stifle dissent by a tortuous, vicious death to those that they would regard as worthy of it. So this is the Pax Christi that he's talking about. The same peace where Jesus talks about. I don't give you peace as the world gives you. I'm giving and bringing a different kind of peace, and that's part of the reason that we that we don't see the peace that we may think of, because the type of peace he's bringing is not this external power-oriented thing. It's this inward seed, and seed takes time. Seeds take time to grow. But God is making peace. We're told four times here that He brings peace, that He makes true peace. What does that look like? Well, we'll come back to our text here. How does God make peace first? By reconciling us to God. By reconciling us to God. So we're right in the middle of the passage here. Look at this, uh, this last part, or the middle part. He brought peace in one body, reconciling both of them to God. We'll talk about both here in a second. Through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He brought peace to them by the cross. He reconciled them, first of all, to God. First of all, to God. You see, God could have imposed that kind of peace. But the kind of peace that he desires, the peace of love, he had to deal with the first thing, the most basic thing that kept us as people from living in peace as individuals, but also as a society. And that is that we're separated. We're even called uh, those who are enemies of God because of our sin. Now, how does that work? Well, God, as a holy, righteous God, is not able to live with those who persist in unholiness. So there's a separation between us in that sense. But more than that, God is the righteous judge of all the universe. He must make sure that there is a just penalty for when those of us who are moral agents knowingly do what we know is wrong. This is the first problem. You recall in the temple. This is the tabernacle that gave way to the temple. Same design, though. There was a separation between God and man symbolized. Here you have the holy place symbolizing God's presence. And here outside, where only the priests could go, only the high priest could go in there once a year, and that with blood. And then outside was everyone else, symbolizing God's presence, desire to be present with his people. But at the same time, this is a holy God, and you can't approach him without without, uh, risking your own life, as it were. So he reconciles us to God, first of all. And when he does that, then this the veil of this temple is torn open, and we are reconnected with our source. So the first way that God reconciles us to himself, and by doing that, he he brings peace to this world. This is different than Rome's idea of peace, right? Different than most people's idea of peace. Think of it this way. Peace is not a human achievement. This kind of peace is a gift of God. Therefore, we can only be received by those who are in a connection with God, who are connected to the source of that peace. So this church is on a well, right? We get all of our water from that. If that well was uh, plugged up, if it was broken, if, if, if for some reason it didn't function right, we wouldn't have any water here. No matter how much we desired to have water here, no matter how vigorously we turned the faucets, we had lost connection with the source Therefore, no water is going to come. And in the same way, when humanity and us as individuals, when we lose our connection with the source of peace, we lose peace. So that's the first thing God does. And that's why this cross is so central to what God is doing in bringing peace. Now, through that, through that, by reconciling us to God, he also does something else. He begins then to reconcile us with each other. We are reconciled with each other. And the way he's going to do that, Paul is saying that the first thing he's done, he has taken the most divisive category of humanity that was then known, and he's taken both those groups and making them one. Now, who's he talking about? Jews and Gentiles. And that's why he talks about you. He uses a second person plural, because he is a Jew is writing to a Gentile audience in the first century. But we're Gentiles too, so we can just uh, receive it as such. He says, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth, called uncircumcised by those who call themselves a the circumcision, which is done in the body by hand. So he has a different idea of true circumcision. He says, remember at that time before your salvation, you, you were, what were you? You were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. Foreigners to the covenants of promise. You were, you were cut off from Israel's Messiah. You were cut off from citizenship in God's people. You were cut off from the, from the covenants, God's precious promises to redeem mankind. You didn't have any of that. You were without hope and without God in this world. That's who we were. But, now in Christ... You who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Now what's happening here? Well, ultimately, God's desire is for all mankind to live in peace. But the way he wants to illustrate this is by, by taking the most divisive category the most, the most basic and long-lasting and deepest enmity between two groups of people and showing how God has brought, us, brought those together. Therefore, if he can do that with those two groups, that's his desire, and that's what he'll do for all people. Now, what was it about the Jews and the Gentiles? In the ancient world, there simply was no greater division, even hatred, between two groups of people than between Jews and Gentiles. And... and Think of it. It wasn't just a racial or, or, or moral or uh, cultural difference. It was, it was all of the above. So Jews and Gentile were all obviously considered themselves a different race of people. But there was also this idea, this very deep uh, religious idea, that the Jews and the Gentiles were very separate because of this Jewish barrier. So the Jews are the ones who have been chosen by God to receive the promises that the Messiah would come through them and given all this instruction, and, and indeed that symbolized by the temple itself. The Gentiles had none of that. And the Jews were those who would be right with God, or sought to be right with God by keeping the commands, as he talks about here. So there are 613 commands in the Old Testament, and those are they desired to keep as their way towards God. And uh, the Gentiles thought that was crazy. I mean, have you ever read all those commands of the Old Testament? They're like, no, where are we doing that? And because of that, there's also this great moral difference, right? The the Jews, because of the law, they valued restraint in sexual activity. They valued restraint in in drinking and eating and and in other things. Uh, The Gentiles, no. (laughs) Now, the women had to toe the line, but the men could do pretty much whatever they wanted. So in the Roman Empire, especially in the Mediterranean Basin, prostitution was rampant because it was totally thought fine, as long as you didn't go overboard. Homosexuality, even with adolescent boys, was, was very, very common. Drunkenness, lewdness, uh, gluttony, even uh, these feasts that would just basically turn into you know, three days of, of eating and drinking. This was part of their culture. The Jews looked at people like this a little better than animals, and the Gentiles looked at the Jews as upright prigs. It was a big barrier. Remember, Peter, God had to give him the same vision three times before he got it through his head that he could even go under the same roof as a Gentile. One Jewish writer at this period, I think more than one, he summed it up this way The Gentiles are fit only to fuel the fires of hell. (laughs) This was a big barrier. So, what does God do? Here's what he does. You who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. Here's his thought, and you'll see how he develops this. What God does, basically, is he sends Jesus, this Jewish Messiah, to fulfill the law, to take away the debt of sin punishment, and therefore therefore, create this new body of people, this new humanity of believing Jews and believing Gentiles in one body. In fact, he says he's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Here's good news, and I'm always surprised how many Christians don't get this. You do not have to obey the Old Testament law. You are not bound by the 613 commands of the Old Testament. Now, many of those are translated into New Testament ethics, yes. But if you read Galatians, the whole book, if you read Acts 15, the question has been decided by God's Spirit working through his people. You are not under the law. You can approach God without that. That is good news, by the way. That is very good news. There was a symbol in Paul's mind to really kind of show what this was like. So in the ancient world, again... Everywhere had temples, and a temple was basically viewed as the dwelling place of a God. So this building here is, would not be a temple. This would be a religious building. It's used for religious purpose. But a temple is viewed as someplace where God dwells. Now, in Israel, that that concept always had tension because, of course, God doesn't dwell fully in a human form, let alone one place. And so when Solomon dedicated the first and great temple He prayed, you know, God, you you fill the whole heavens. The heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain you, much less this house I have built. So there was always that tension. But that's what it symbolized, at least. And that symbolism was very important because that's how you would grow closer to God, in a sense, by coming into the temple. In the temple of Jesus' time and Paul's time, it looked like this. So this is the temple proper, this building right here. Here's the court of the priests where they would offer sacrifice. Um, this was the court of women, so Jewish women could come in here and here. And then you notice this wall all the way around. This was a wall about three feet high. It's called the sorg. And this wall had gaps or gates, whatever you want to call them, so that Jewish people could go through them. But at every place where there was that opening, there was also a warning. Here's a bit, little bit better picture of it closed, close up. And here is that warning. This actually is from the temple itself. So this is an archaeological find. This is what it would be if you cleaned it up and, uh, and could read it better. And this is the translation. No stranger. And by that, they definitely meant a non-Jewish person No stranger is to enter within the balustrade around the temple and its enclosure. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for the ensuing death. Now, this wall, yeah, they meant business. He brought peace. I'm going backwards. He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Because now what happens? Look, he's set aside all this, this, this law which kind of was symbolized in that dividing wall of hostility. And then through him, he, he's making one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile them both to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preach, preached peace to you who are far away, you Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, the Jews, For through him, we both have access to the same father. You know, the the temple in Jerusalem was meant to model the, the cosmos, or at least the meaning of the cosmos, of God's dwelling place. God never told them to set up that wall, that sorig. You won't find that anywhere in the scriptures. But God will tear it down. God has torn it down. The temple itself was destroyed about 10 years after Paul wrote these words. But Paul has that already in his mind when he's thinking of this true temple of God, of which any human temple is only uh, a pale reproduction. He says it's, it's all clear that the ground at the foot of the cross, the ground of this temple, is all at level. We all have access to one Father together. So we are created this new humanity, but then together we're also adopted into God's family. So in God's mind, you and I, if we are truly believers in this Jesus, we are of the same family. We are brothers and sisters. let me go further. In God's eyes, you are a brother and sister to every true believer who has politically opposite viewpoints of yours and mine. You are brothers and sisters with those of different races around the world and within our own country. You are brothers and sisters with those who have totally different uh, traditions and practices who give a, a lot of their allegiance to their own country, whether they're in Russia or China or, or, or anywhere else. Our, our deepest union is with these people around the world. This is the peace that God has brought. He has brought us into one new humanity and one new body. And then lastly, he says, together we also build the true temple of God. I'm getting ahead of myself. So consequently, the last part of this, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. But fellow citizens with God's people, but not only that, members of his household. And then he goes on to have this picture of this temple of which all of us, Jew and Gentile, black and white, male and female, American and Russian, all have a part. We are members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone in him, The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Why did God let that temple in Jerusalem be destroyed? Because it served no more purpose. It's been fulfilled now in this new humanity. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That, That temple idea. Now, you know, when I first read this, I'm like, you know, this is kind of odd, all right? Why go here? If he wants to talk about unity, I mean, you can't get more united than being brought together in one family with the same father. Um, But he, he goes here. Now why? Because we have to remember that we not only have a unity in this nature that God has brought us into, but we also have a unity in our role. You see, a temple was not just a place where God symbolically lived. It was, because of that, also the place that showed what God was like, what God is like. Every part of the temple Every part of the temple, from the ornaments within the holy place to the items in the holy holies to the, to the uh, washing basin and, and sacrifice, sacrifice of grail outside and, and altar, every part was symbolizing something about God and the way that we were able to interact with him. The temple was designed to draw people, but also to show them the glory and the nature of this God. That is our role. And that's why he goes here. To remind us that if we are the true temple of God, we also are those who are designed to show this God to the world. That is a great and high calling. So we together become the true temple of God. So let's wrap this point up, then we'll get to the application. So God makes true peace, first of all, by reconciling us to God. Through that, we are reconciled with each other. We're together made into one new humanity with Jesus himself, the new and better Adam. We are together adopted into God's family, and together we build the true temple of God. All right, great. This is what God has done. What should we do? Three things, three things. First, seek peace and strive for unity. Seek peace and strive for unity. I don't know if you know this, but Ephesians has six chapters divided right down the middle. Three chapters describing all that God has done. We're in the middle of that. And then three chapters, four, five, and six, describing how we're supposed to respond. What is the first thing, the very first thing that comes to Paul's mind when he talks about, therefore, live in light, live worthy of this calling? This. Oh, I want you. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You don't have to obey everything. You don't have to get everything right in order to be right with God. He has done it through the cross. But I want you to be so moved by this that you live a certain way. And the top item, the number one thing on my list is this. I want you to be humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with each other means that we're probably going to get on each other's nerves sometimes, right? Right? Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, to keep the unity, not create it. But we do have a responsibility to keep it. Benjamin Franklin was one of the delegates at the Constitutional Congress who met in Philadelphia in the fall of 1787. And um, he was one of the, the key players within that. And, and the main item on the menu. The main agenda item was, what kind of country are we going to be politically? What kind of government are we going to set up for the people? And of course, the model that most everyone was familiar with was a monarchy. That's what England had. That's what pretty much every uh, European nation had. Were they going to go to that model or go to a republic? A republic where the power was in the people, represented by certain others who were elected, and then guided and guarded by a written constitution that bound them all. Which way were they going to go? After the Continental Congress concluded, a woman in Philadelphia approached Ben Franklin and she said, Dr. Franklin, what kind of government have you given us? And he responded to her in words that became very famous. You may have heard them before. A republic, if you can keep it. Now, what did he mean? Well, he meant that they did their best to write down on paper and to set up the structures by which the people could have power. And, and the nation would not be ruled by one person, even a group of powerful people who did whatever they wanted, but it was up to the people themselves to make sure that that happened because he knew that every political or po- politically powerful person was a potential king in the making in their heart. That's the idea. God is saying to us, let's personalize it. He's saying to you and to I, I want you to do everything you can to keep the unity. Keep the unity. That will probably mean living in humility towards each other, bearing with each other. It will mean putting up with people who annoy us. It will mean not arguing about people simply for the sake of disagreement. You know, one of the things... uh, I I was in debate many years uh, in high school and college, and then I was a debate coach. So I I always loved the the thrill of argumentation. But one of the things I had to learn as I uh, became, first of all, a husband, then a pastor, and just dealing with other people, is it's okay to let other people be what you think is wrong in their opinions. It's okay to let other people be wrong. They don't have to think like you or agree with you. Our goal is not to fix other people's opinion, but to love them with the ultimate goal that they become more like Jesus Christ. Does that mean sometimes I give them my opinion? And answer? Sure, that's fine. But it's not our goal to all think the same way or to argue each other into a submission, as it were. But instead, within our church, but also in our family and society, We make it our goal to keep the unity that God so desires and pays so highly for. Now, this is unity, not uniformity. That's kind of what I'm going at. God loves a a unity that is brought together of different parts, working together for a great purpose. Look at your own body. Paul uses this analogy. Uh, You ever seen a body that was all eyes or all hands? No, it's not going to work because you have to have different parts doing different things, working different ways for this purpose, for the body to work together. Same thing in a forest or even one cell in your body. All right, so seek for peace, strive for unity. And then second, seek to bring others into the family. Seek to bring others into the family. We should seek peace with all people. Paul tells us that in another place. As much as it lies within you, seek peace with everyone. But you know, from an eternal perspective, isn't it true that the greatest thing we can do to be a peacemaker and to find the blessing that Jesus talked about, blessing other peacemakers, is to be a midwife into someone else's birth, into the family of God? And yet we often don't think of that or it's not high on our priority list. Think about What you can do in your own life, in your sphere of influence, to bring others into the family. And then lastly, I'm just going to be tying this up here. Always remember that it's always Christ. Always remember that it's always Christ. He himself is our peace. So he's not just the one who brings peace. We are brought into him, and he is our peace. He is the new and better Adam of this new humanity, that's a, a metaphor Paul goes back to in Romans 5, that Christ is a second Adam. Why? Because now there's this new humanity, this eternal eternal beings who are going to be with God, fulfill that original role of being God's visible representations, the visible rep- representations of the invisible God within the f- physical world, and Christ as the new Adam under that we are under him. He is the true son that has brought us into the family. We are adopted brothers and sisters. And we're adopted because of what the true son has done. And then lastly, he's the cornerstone of this temple. He's the cornerstone of the temple. Now we, we kind of skip by that idea of the cornerstone. but We have this temple idea, and, and it says, Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. Now what is that? Well, I think we don't use this today, really, because we have other ways of accomplishing the same goals. But in the ancient world, a cornerstone had a very particular meaning and place. It was the first stone you would set. So it had to be part of a very strong foundation. But more importantly, the the real purpose of this was that this was the stone that set the direction of the walls. So you measured the walls, if it was going straight or not, by how straight it was lined up with the angle of of the cornerstone. And... uh, He says, Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone of this new temple, the chief cornerstone. I like what Peter says about this. As you come to him, the living stone. So he says, you know, he's a cornerstone, but have to remember he's not just rock. The living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God, a precious tomb. You also, like the living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, a temple, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture, it says, quoting Isaiah 57, See, I lay in Zion, Jerusalem, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That is the idea. It's all him. Lastly, let me leave us with one thought. If Jesus is the new and better Adam of our new humanity, if he's the true son that brought us into the family, and most of all, for this point, if he is the cornerstone of God's eternal temple, the, the thing that's the fulfillment of all history, I guess he would probably be a pretty good cornerstone to build my life on more and more. It? That may mean, if I haven't placed my trust in Christ yet for salvation, then maybe I understand right now. It's not about being good enough. It's not about my works. As we saw last week, it's by grace you're saved. It means I place my trust in him for my eternal destiny, asking him to forgive me and make me his own, bring me into this new family of God. Or maybe most of us have probably already made that decision. So for us, maybe it's thinking about the things that are threatening us in our life, that are threatening our peace. And saying, God, you can't, to bring peace I need that more and more in my life and maybe the way I go about that is remembering that you are the worthy and right cornerstone for all creation all that God is doing and I'm gonna trust you I'm gonna trust you that you're building something I don't really see the design of right now it's gonna be a lot bigger and better than what I see but I'm going to trust that what you allow to come into my life is exactly what should be there. Not that you are the author of evil and suffering in that sense, but rather that you and your wisdom use everything in my life, the good and the bad, the pleasant and the sorrowful, for your great purpose. You align all things with the cornerstone, not only in this temple, but in my life. And you know what you're doing. Won't that be a wonderful thought, to offer to God again and again? Well, this last song we're going to sing is actually that same thought. Christ alone, cornerstone. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness.